0: Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 379 and our first interview of the new year. This is part one of our conversation with percussionist with the New York City Ballet Orchestra and New York Philharmonic, creator of Percussion on the Sound, educator and composer Pablo Riappi. We'll get to him shortly. But first up, The spring 2024 semester is finally here. As I'm recording this, we have just finished up the first days of teaching, which also included sitting in on large ensemble auditions for a couple of instruments here at Mizzou. Looking forward to a busy but good semester here, particularly as I take on an updated course on pop music that I haven't gotten to teach before. I'm hoping it all goes well. And I'm already ready, for this to be three and a half weeks in and the semester is just rolling along, which is my favorite thing. Speaking of rolling along, and it continues to be my favorite thing, let's get to our conversation with Pablo Rieppi. I was actually interested in having Pablo on the show in preparation for this past year's PASIC 2023, and it turned out that, for some unknown reason, his email response to my inquiry to have him on the show went to my spam folder, which I'm still completely unclear as to why that happened. In any case, once that was rectified, we set up a time last year to do the interview, and here he is. Pablo's been working as a performer in New York City and its surrounding areas for a long time. He's been with the New York City Ballet Orchestra for a while and has been performing with the New York Phil and many other organizations in the New York area for some time. He's also been heavily involved in teaching, both on the college and now pre-college level, and has been composing and arranging music frequently throughout his professional life. As a matter of fact, we get so deep into his performance, teaching, and composing career, including a whole section devoted to the very inventive ways Pablo uses popular method books, that we essentially cover all that just in part one of the interview. So, we get another two-parter. This week, we'll get to his professional life as a performer, educator, and composer and arranger. Then, in part two, we'll get to his path to getting where he is now and our usual close to the show. So, let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on January 4th, 2024, and it begins right now. All right. So Pablo, give me a summation of your percussion activities and responsibilities as they are at this point.
1: Well, I'm a member of the New York City um, Ballet Orchestra. That's, I'm, I'm tenured there. as my sort of full-time job. I'm currently acting principal just because we had a couple of um, people leave and there's an upcoming audition for that. So my responsibilities have heightened there temporarily. Normally I do uh, a lot of percussion playing and some timpani playing there. Um, in addition to that, when I'm not at the New York City Ballet, I do a fair amount of playing as an extra at the New York Philharmonic, which is right across the plaza. For those of you that are they're not familiar, all this is in Lincoln Center. So if you're looking at the Fountain, the ballet's on the left, the opera's in the middle, and then the Philharmonic's on the right, um, David Geffenhall. So uh, I do a fair amount there when I'm not at the ballet and performance-wise, what there is left of like film scoring and things like that. Um, I do a fair amount of that in New York and just some other things that, that may come up. But between those two orchestras, I, I do a fair amount of of, of playing there. I love to teach. So uh, I teach at the Juilliard, the Juilliard school, uh, pre-college division. I help design the curriculum for the math division, which is music advancement. And then the pre-college is sort of like the more advanced program. I'm director of the percussion studies there, and one of the, one of the instructors. Um, that's something I have a lot of pride in, because well, we'll I guess we'll get to it later. But um, I purposely made a decision to—I've taught a lot of on the university level, and I, I made a purposeful decision to uh, start teaching more at the, at the high school and, in some cases, younger level because for, for many reasons we can discuss later on. I also teach at Hofstra University. Um, and I developed my own program on Long Island called percussion on the sound pots for short, which is basically a pre-collegiate, uh, percussion ensemble. Uh, we do all kinds of things from like music theory, uh, to all the fundamentals on percussion. And then we do a couple of percussion ensemble concerts during the year. Uh, there's a soloist concert and it kind of all culminates with our summer, uh, which is a, a week long, uh, residential program, So there's dorms and the whole thing at, uh, five towns college. And that's a program that's uh yielded some really great players, uh, some of them go into the Juilliard Prep division and other conservatories uh, but basically, with the exception of a few programs around the country, there's very few places where percussionists come migrate from the back of the orchestra to the front of the orchestra as as, as you would say so this provides like ensemble and solo opportunities that pianists and violinists normally have at that age, but we don't usually get until the college level so. It's another, another opportunity for youngsters, young musicians that are highly motivated to get involved playing uh, percussion as a soloist, as a chamber musician, etc. And then uh, I do a lot of writing. My latest book just came out. It's called 12 Modern Timpani Solos. And that was pretty cool. I'm just going to mention it real quick because uh, a bunch of my colleagues from around the country, timpanists that I highly admire, each recorded a solo. And it's all sort of parked on the percussion conservatory platform. Uh, Josh Vandere's, uh curating that, which is, I'm very thankful for. So it's kind of neat because the book got released and you could immediately see a lot of the videos, you know, of, of great timpanists playing them. And I write a lot of pieces. I'm currently working at finishing two more. I really love it. Uh, I love writing. And uh, what, the other thing that I really love also is uh, this year... Um, I, I've been doing it for quite a while but this year I got the opportunity to present a class at PASIC. Um, so I love presenting classes uh, and getting in front of people and talking about percussion my total percussion geek um, talk about education how to do things how to make things work try to help uh, young players because I, I remember starting off myself and being a young player so um, that's fresh in my head and I, I love the opportunity to try to help younger players get to where they're going so That's basically what I do. Extras in there somewhere that I guess we'll get to at some
0: point. Your prime job is New York city ballet. Is that right? Yes. And that's, is that what got you to
1: New York? I came to New York a long time ago to get my master's at Juilliard in my life. I I actually did a master's and I did a year of, uh, I guess I think it was called professional studies at that time. It was basically you had to re-audition if you wanted to stay And it was just a place for me to be able to practice in New York city can be really challenging to practice. Uh, and so having another year to both study at Juilliard and, and, you know, I really enjoyed my time there and to have all the resources of the practice rooms and the instruments was great. You know, I, I did a couple more recitals and it was also fortuitous because I was able to make my first step into the professional world in that last year. So, um, that's how, I, that's how I came to New York is uh, getting my master's at Juilliard with no real idea what was going to happen after that. But I kind of transitioned into pretty active freelance career. And then years in 2010-ish, 2012, I officially got the position at the ballet. Uh, so there's a, a long time there. Yeah, quite a number of years <laughs> where I just freelanced and, and did many things, um, many, many, many things uh, until I got that position.
0: Getting the position there, had you been playing with them just as a freelance here and there? Or was this a an ensemble that you you were like, I'm just going to apply because I'm applying for positions and I'm trying to get something, a stronger foothold or something uh, permanent?
1: Yeah, I'd been subbing there for about two years. Okay before that and it got progressively more busy subbing there in the meantime i was trying to juggle you know i had my own broadway show which is you know eight shows a week and teaching and i was teaching at purchase college at the time and uh, columbia university and all these places plus recording and a lot of chamber music so it was a very 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 busy time one of the great things about the ballet is it gave me the opportunity to be more selective about the work that I that I did going forward and giving more chance, uh, you know, more time to to do some writing, to practice more things like that. So when that came along, I was really I w- I felt very lucky and I was very happy about it.
0: What is the schedule? The tip, the regular schedule for the ballet in terms of um, practices and performances.
1: It's approximately twenty six weeks a year. It's a little more than that. Um, in terms of our contract—it's a little more because of you know vacation and and there's a there's a summer week at Saratoga and and a couple other things. But basically, it's 26 weeks. Those weeks are double dense. Uh, typical uh, symphonic schedule would be three or four rehearsals and three or four concerts in a week. <clears throat> we have, well, it depends on how many rehearsals from week to week. send a set amount, but it could be as much as four rehearsals a week, four or five rehearsals a week but we have seven concerts a week and those concerts could be three different programs. Um, once in a while, we'll do what's called the story ballet. Where, like for example, Romeo and Juliet, we do a full ballet, uh, Prokofiev, which is one of my favorite pieces in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll, we might do that for a week. Um, Swan Lake, we might do for a week or two, but uh, it doesn't happen super frequently. more frequently it's the case that we, do three or four programs in a given week, which means it's a lot of action, a lot of turnover of instruments, a lot of rep to learn. Of course, we are a repertory company, which means the pieces come up. A lot of pieces come up quite a bit, but every year there are at least, I would say four or five new pieces that get introduced. Some stick, some don't. It's a very exciting place. The repertoire is fantastic. You know, George Balanchine, who founded the ballet was a very good pianist and musician himself. Um, so he highly prized uh, great music and arrangements and things like that. He had a very good relationship with Stravinsky. Stravinsky wrote us a piece called Agon, um, which is not performed too much outside of the ballet world. But uh, just to say that uh, the connection with music of the ballet is very, traditionally very strong. Uh, so the repertoire is indicative of that. And there's some really great things to play. So and yeah, in any given week it might be three or four different programs Usually some really great stuff to play. You might have a bunch of rehearsals on top of that, plus the teaching load and gets busy. And then you might have like, you know, a few weeks where you're off in the ballet, which is great. Um, gives you a chance to recoup, you know, practice. I, like I said, i end up playing in other places during that time. Uh, so I personally love the schedule. It gives me a lot of freedom to do other things.
0: You kind of answered that que- uh, question I was going to have about if it's 26 weeks or, you know, maybe a little bit more that there have to be, I would assume like breaks, as you were saying within ballet, are you playing a lot of the same, or a lot of programs done over and over and over again? I, Cause it's a genre that has a lot, but not as much as other genres, not as much, I would assume not as much as opera, not as much as, the symphonic world. So what ends up being a lot of the repertoire? Is there a lot of new uh, ballets that are being written that you're also playing? How is that factored in? We, we, we pull from symphonic and from opera, to tell you the truth. There are
1: pieces that are written for the ballet. Like Romeo and Juliet's a ballet, right? A spring is a ballet. Yeah, That's performed in the symphonic world. And, yes. and the reverse happens. Like, for example, we do a whole Copeland program where it's actually a lot of fun. It's like Rodeo, Appalachian, and Appalachian Spring, and Billy the Kid. It's a whole suite. It's one yeah. night. So part so so those are ballets obviously also but um, they're performed a lot in the symphonic world and they've been choreographed um, as a set for us. You know we'll do parts of Tchaikovsky's uh, Third Symphony uh, or actually a piece I didn't know very well at all was Tchaikovsky's Suite Number no. Three, which is an, or- an orchestral piece. Hmm. But I. Orchestral world. I never actually played it. I played it for the first time in the ballet, and the ballet would do it quite a bit. So we borrow a lot of repertoire from the orchestral world and and operas too that they make certain arrangements uh, yeah. of pieces. Uh, so actually, our repertoire is extremely broad and very rich. And then, of course, as you mentioned, there are pieces that are just for ballet.
0: Not only that, but there's also operas that have like French grand opera or something where there's a lot of dance that's involved. There, there are ballets
1: in operas like yeah. <laughs> called ballets. Um so you're right, absolutely right. That's right. Um and we we do quite we quite we do a number of those as well. Uh and another thing that happens uh frequently is for example Nutcracker. We do well, yeah. we do 50 performances of Nutcracker and it's uh and I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say they're every single performance is sold out. I went to get my daughter a ticket uh last week and there were no tickets available um i had to get well, I, buy, I ended up having I ended up having to get one of the house seats um but there are no you know it sold, it sells out completely it's very popular in new york in the nutcracker uh, one of the movements the violin solo is borrowed from sleeping beauty like balanchine hmm. would do that quite a bit he would okay. borrow from other pieces and insert them in pre-existing pieces or take out certain movements so the arrangements might be slightly different than what you what you're used to sometimes um but again he was such a great uh, such an an intelligent creative person and such a strong musician that he felt very comfortable doing it
0: and, and those changes actually make a lot of sense what i was going to ask about the nutcracker is that it, does that basically pay for the like it, that's so much a part of the the i would assume the budgeting for the group right is just if you have if you could do 60 performances of the nutcracker they would they would sell out the rather 10 would sell out too i would assume right <laughs> like probably i mean uh, we start the day after thanksgiving literally
1: that friday morning we rehearse we have one rehearsal um and the rehearsal is probably at this point just like hi we're back (laughs) (laughs) everybody everybody has a piece memorized (laughs) Um, and then we then we just uh we start you know includes a couple of uh young people's performances like 11 a.m performances and towards the end of the of that run we end up doing ten performances a week to make up for like being off Christmas day and things like that like they really fit them in. But to your point, if they had another week, I'm sure it would sell out. And one interesting thing to point out about the Nutcracker because in New York it's such a Christmas, you know, holidays uh it, right. it's completely associated with the holidays. Yeah. Um the premiere was actually in February. Oh, originally. Okay. Originally the premiere was in February. So it was not necessarily linked to the holidays but of course and now it's like in new york it's like you know that's anonymous almost so
0: right <laughs> how do you know the number of how many have you played like what 1500 performances of it at this point maybe more <laughs> i don't know i mean to tell you the truth this year i did 45 that's the
1: most i've ever done okay um typically i do i do less because i end up Playing a lot, you know, with the harmonic or something like that, and yeah. take off some things. Uh, also, I feel like for my sanity, it's a good thing to take a few shows off and then come back. <laughs> um, I mean, don't get me wrong; I I love the music. Every year we come when we start it, it's it gets me in in the holiday mood too, and I yeah. I, I really love the music and the parts are fun and all that stuff. But you know, anything you do with that much repetition, uh, you need a break from once in a while. So that's that's of course no exception. Um, but Over the years, I don't know how many I've done. I've never counted, but, uh, you know, you can do the math. Let's say I roughly started in 2012-ish and an average of 35 to 40 a year. So um, they add up. But, and also to your point, yeah, it pays a lot of the bills. So it's a very important part of our season. And, you know, coming from a Broadway background, or not a background, but a number of years where I've played Broadway shows, with the Nutcracker, I know that we play it basically for December, and then it's over. When I was on Broadway, that that could that could last a year or two years. It's it's relatively easy for me to to get through them compared to other experiences I've had.
0: Within the space of Lincoln Center, how do uh, musicians, the other percussionists? Is, is there plenty of room for equipment? Do you have to keep things in different places? Is everything kind of accessible right there? Each venue has, I would say in general, everybody does pretty well.
1: You know, Juilliard's got plenty of money, plenty of budget for pieces that require kind of maybe more eccentric instruments uh, or instruments that are not normal, like oxy- tune oxygen tanks and things of that nature. The New York Philharmonic, you know, Chris Lamb is um, incredibly meticulous and thorough about his collection of instruments. It's, you know, pretty impressive uh, what they have there. And there's like, you know, they have storage facilities like in the basement and they keep some things up. It's kind of all over the place because it's a ton of gear. Um, The Met also has a nice collection. We have a very good collection. It's not quite as extensive as the New York Philharmonic, but, you know, over time you you keep building these things and, and replacing gear and buying more equipment. I just set my shopping list last week and bought a bunch of things. Uh, I go up to Zildjian like once a year. I'm a Zildjian artist, so I go up there once or twice a year and pick out. Uh, I'm currently working on a sort of lighter set of symbols, uh, another sort of series that work together. So I go up there. I might, I might cultivate, you know, I might, um, you know, curate that over the, over the course of maybe three years, go go up with a couple of pairs that I already bought, maybe something that I'm shooting for and then try to match. And, you know, picking symbols is in the factory is it's great. It's a great privilege. And, and, and I love doing it, but it's very time consuming and kind of taxing on the ears. Cause you're there for a while trying to match the perfect pair. I, we use a lot of cap heads at work. So, uh, we end up tucking a lot of those ourselves, like on a snare drum, uh, timpani, the tim- our timpancy and Sullivan does that, you know, three or four times a year. And I do that on tambourines and, and snare drums and things like that. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, I think care and attention paid to the gear, uh, just because I think the more experience you get, the more nuanced your hearing gets. And the more you desire that have different colors and different sounds and sometimes you have to make those happen by you know making your own heads or you know as, as a percussionist i know you know that discovering that perfect symbol or a great drum that's in some kind of weird garage sale or something like that it's, it's very satisfying gratifying and, and the search never ends so same thing with those institutions i think you're always looking for certain sounds. And unfortunately, we live in a place um, where, you know, there's a pretty decent budget for those kind of things. Uh, it's not unlimited or uh, you can't get whatever you want, but certainly you can make a case for, for things that are important.
0: When you got the full-time position, what was that audition experience like? Was it over weeks? Was it one long, long, long day? Was it a weekend? What, what was the situation? actually i was pretty lucky i was appointed because i've been sub- i've been
1: subbing there and the conductor just appointed me so um i think those days are probably gone <laughs> there um you mean for uh, you we have an you? upcoming no for the whole institution for everybody oh oh i see we have a new music director and and you know it makes sense um so our, our upcoming openings are are all you know are actually for the last several years of are all audition based. Um, but yeah, I was fortunate. I, I was appointed, um, you know, based on my playing there and,
0: uh, yeah. Those you had the years when you were, um, you were a grad student, but you were also gigging and kind of making your way. Is that how the connections formed for you to be with New York Phil and with some of the other, uh, organizations that you started working with? They, they all started at that point. Certain organizations, yes. Um, near Phil,
1: I, I'm not quite sure how I started there. Perhaps, I mean, they don't really tell you, oh, this is what happened necessarily. It could have been a recommendation from, you know, uh, one of my teachers uh, played there. Um I know, I know I was doing a recital with Joe Pereira at one point and who's was in the Thaumont at the time. And, you know, Chris Lamb came to the recital. I, I, I'm not sure. Certainly you know, there is, there is a certain amount of hiring that gets done based on your reputation and then, oh, somebody to hear you play or, or whatever. And then you got to show up and, you know, do a good job. I just realized that last summer was, I was doing the math. It's been 25 years since I've been subbing in the Neuropho which awesome. seemed like I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And that, that has been extremely important to me. And Not financially. I mean, financially, sure, but I've learned so much, you know, playing there um, with such a great section around so many great players that that's a really valuable experience, very valuable experience for me. And I think some of the smaller orchestras in town, you know, that don't do as so many services. That certainly, it's like our reputation, as I'm sure it is in Missouri. It's like the percussion, the percussion and music community is pretty small. Once you start thinking about like. Oh shoot. Who should I get for this? Or who should I get for that? The list becomes immediately very small. Like who's going to do a good job as a player? Who's going to get along with everybody? Are they going to be on time? Are they going to be early? Are they going to, do I have to worry about just them being prepared or how they're going to act in a recording session or on a concert? And as soon as you start kind of checking all those boxes, the lists kind of get shorter and shorter. So when I was starting, I, I mean, I think I'm still this way, but when I was starting out, I was, if I had to, I remember the first time I got asked to play in a, in a new music group was just a rehearsal. I was subbing for, I think like something like Dan Druckmann couldn't make a rehearsal. So they asked me if I, if I could do it. So, you know, of course, Dan Druckmann a fantastic you know, player, especially in that care music setting. He's extremely good. Uh, a lot of facility, you know, it wasn't a very hard part, but I—I I don't know how many hours I practiced it just to make sure that I knew every single end of that part, and just to be ready for if you know there was a good conductor, there was a bad conductor. I couldn't hear if I couldn't hear what the other people were doing. If I had to look up for a period of time and play this keyboard part, how would I do that? You know, all—all yeah. all these different parameters of it and. For a long time, I did that for a long time. I, I'm still very conscientious, but particularly at the beginning, and I think that really paid off because people realized that I always came in as prepared as possible. I, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but I would come in as prepared as possible, and that 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 level of preparation, hard work, and conscientiousness has, is really responsible for, I guess, the career that I that I've had in New York, and I think it's a great bit of advice, you know, for young players that. Um, I certainly treated it as like, no situation was, uh, to be disregarded or treated as like not important. I think that every situation should be treated as really important and you should give it your best shot. Cause you never know who's listening, you never know, never know what kind of opportunities will come from them. So that's, right. that's extremely important. Keep
0: in mind. I've, the other way I've heard that phrase, I, I completely agree. And the other way I've heard it is, um, you're always auditioning, basically.
1: Yeah, or like, uh, you're only as good as your last performance. Or right. there are several versions of it, uh, for sure. And I think that's actually true. I mean, there, there's been times where I'm on stage with people, and it could be somebody that I'm, that's very good that I'm playing next to. But if they did something because they didn't prepare very well, or they really botched something up, yeah, it's not that you know, it's not that I'm, I'm very forgiving. Cause we all, again, we all make mistakes, but right. you can't help but think, Oh, that didn't sound very good. You right. know, it's not, it's not a conscientious judgment. It's just a, a conscious judgment. Rather. It's a, it's just like an, a kind of a knee jerk reaction that you have. Cause you're always trying to play and listen at a high level. So, right. Yeah. I think it's important to always do your best.
0: Yeah. Uh, or, uh, you know, you, you, unfortunately you say out loud, like, how'd they miss that? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, well that's,
1: uh, again, part of it is knowing how to conduct yourself. That's something like, you never do. It's not even a good idea to look over there if that right. happens. Uh, <laughs> you just, if it's a, if it's a good friend of yours and it's one of those, you know, like during Nutcracker, yeah. it's an, actually this year I was, I was commenting. It was pretty incredible how consistent everybody was. Yeah. But once in a while somebody does something or maybe in a different section or you hear this, like, week or whatever happens and of course it's hilarious because everybody's you know been sitting in the classroom sort of like on their best behavior and then something happens accidentally and actually it's so refreshing (laughs) it's hilarious it's like hilarious refreshing entertaining you know and it it just i don't know it's not a malicious thing at all it's just like it's kind of like somebody doing a funny sound in the middle of a quiet classroom or something like that you know um and some some mistakes are are kind of funny when they happen on concerts and your and, and in that case if it's a colleague that you you know you're both respect each other and something like that happens and people kind of smirk and everybody kind of finds it funny that's different um and those things do happen and and they're very very valuable and I I I treasure those moments but uh but uh that aside it's a good idea to be prepared
0: well let's get to the teaching aspect of what you do because you had mentioned in your when you were going over the things that you do that you do that you're you're beginning to focus more or you have more of a desire to work with uh non-college age students but high school or younger or at least do you want to make that more of a focus of what you're doing um what what is the is there a particular reason that that's you've come to that conclusion i guess
1: I wouldn't say that it's um, more of a focus. I just want to make it an equal focus. This is not always the case. But I think a lot of times as we as we step higher and higher in our careers, you're kind of aspiring to do things that you, you perceive as, quote unquote, more important or more difficult or more prestigious. And I think teaching at the university, if you're teaching, teaching at the university level is one of those things. Um, and I get it. You know, I've I've done a lot of it and I still do. And it's really important. I was sitting, listening to auditions I, I, at a college position. I'm not going to say which one, but I was at a, co- and a, co- and a good college program, listening to entrance auditions one year. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would see on on their bios, on these student bios. These were like fresh, you know, undergrads. Basically, there were some grad students actually as well, um, where this was the case. But I would see on their bios, I would say studied privately eight years studied privately seven years studied privately 10 years what, what have you and they would come in sometimes with their drumsticks in their back pocket and okay fine they're not used to the etiquette totally cool yeah, yeah. they would come in and i would say hey can you play a role no they could not play. i mean they try to play a role but they could not play a role uh, their hands were a disaster in terms of their hand position, how they're holding stick. It was it was something, it was like a caveman grip or something, you know, yeah. um, just so much tension, not understanding how the, how the instrument can breathe and resonate, et cetera. All these things, wonderful things that we try to do as musicians. Um, when it came to keyboard playing, just not, no knowledge of how the keyboard lays out, like scales or no knowledge of how to phrase, even a simple, I don't mind hearing a simple piece at all it's if it's phrased nicely and there's a beautiful sound there's a lot to work with there in terms of you know students and of course timpani and uh tuning and 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 getting developing a sound if they played drum set it was usually something very very heavy um and by the way not i'm not saying that these students played all these things i'm just saying those are the areas that i saw that sometimes it was just snare drum and that's it yeah and you know the audition list clearly states like a keyboard keyboard solo snare drum solo timpani solo and as forgiving as you want to be, you know, you, uh, of course, you can't accept them only because, you know, they're coming into a percussion ensemble program, a couple of orchestras, et cetera, et cetera. But, but that wasn't the biggest problem I had with it. The problem I had with it is in those eight years, what did your teacher do with you? Either I have a student for eight years and they learn how to play all these things on a pretty high level or that means they don't want to practice, and so we terminate the relationship in terms of student-teacher. Only because it's not out of question of dislike. It's just because, well, look, I'm getting paid to teach, and I take it very seriously. And I just want an effort from week to week so that we can improve. And so that's that's how a relationship works. Right. Um, so in those when I saw these kids come across and it said eight years, I was baffled i was like what's happening What what are they doing in eight years i think i need to go take a step back and see if i can positively influence that age group or get involved in seeing like what what happens when you take you know when you start with kids that are much younger and so i did that um i got involved in the juilliard prep program now the juilliard prep program is not typical. It's highly motivated kids. Like last year, our four seniors went to Curtis, Juilliard, Eastman, and uh, Cleveland Institute. And they all had really great auditions. So they're highly motivated kids. They're not all like that, but a majority are highly motivated, very intelligent. And there are some who need a lot of extra help and a lot of extra guidance, which is great. That's what we're there for. Um, And as I did it more and more, I got involved um, and, and doing classes in the regional area for high schools and things like that. And, and you start to see, you know, it's just interesting the things you find out about how music education is being done. And, and, you know, in some cases, there's a poor band director who is incredibly well-meaning, but they were a saxophone player and they're teaching percussion lessons. For a saxophone player, they're doing a pretty good job. You know, it's not, this is no criticism on them. It's just like the school isn't supporting the needs of all those students. And so then you at these auditions, you get kids that show up eight years of lessons, but can't play a role. That's the reason I started percussion on the sound to try to get these programs out there. Um, and I love doing these classes. I love meeting young students um, and college students. You know, I love teaching all levels. I mean, in some cases like professionals come to me, like, you know, can I help me improve my snares drum the et cetera. Going to the younger group was a very purposeful decision. And now In my home studio here i'll take i'll take advanced young students like i have a 10 year old that came for the first time um but this youngster is like highly motivated at 10 years old pretty good chops already i mean you can see that there's a serious interest so i will take students sometimes students even younger than high school um if i see that they have a you know gleam in their eye and like a fire in their belly some of them do at that age and it's very, very rewarding because you're basically taking them from the very beginning to wherever they're going to end up. And basically it's on you to make sure that they have, you know, their four food groups, you know, so to speak of of music and that they, their hands develop nicely and they have a nice hand position that they're relaxed when they play and they're moving their body the right way. All these things sort of, if anybody's going to mess it up, it's going to be me because I'm the one that started them. So, I really enjoy that all the information that i use to teach a 10 year old is the same information i'm going to use to teach a college student grad student whatever because most of the problems that come up you can trace back to something basic that they never did quite right or never learned quite the right way to me it all works it's it's kind of a holistic process it all works together because at the end of the day if i'm fixing something in my own playing or an advanced player, it usually comes down to something kind of basic where when they make that change, then all of a sudden they see immediate, you know, exponential results from it.
0: Are those students that you, you do work with, are they, do they seek you out or are they, is it, how how do you end up having contact with them anyway? My schedule is pretty full. So I'll take
1: like maybe two, three max at home. Um, yeah, they contact me. I get, and there's many that I refer. I have a, a couple of students on Long Island that study with me at Hastra that are, um, that are excellent teachers and really good for that age group. Um, for students that may not be quite as motivated, but like are interested. And that's also great. You know, I refer tons of students to other teachers. Um, but once in a while, if the student is highly motivated, usually the parents will contact me, um, they'll send me a couple of videos And, uh, you know, from the videos, if you've had an experience, I'm sure you're the same way you, you watch a video and you're like, oh, there's something there like in the hands or the way they move or the way they play rhythm or the way they, the energy they have in their playing a certain thing that catches your eye. And so if that happens, I will invite them over, um, just for, you know, a, a meet and greet lesson and I'll just have them play for me. We'll talk a little bit. If it seems like that'll work out, then I'm more than happy to work with a student that, you know, that that's motivated and, and practices every really week and things like that. Um, other, otherwise, there's, like I said, a couple of other great, great teachers on Long Island that um, sort of they keep really high numbers in their in their teaching studios because that's one of the main things they do. So they love having uh, a long roll of students and
0: and they do the students really do well with them. So. Now, when in all of this did the composing part come for you?
1: I've always been interested in, in writing. <clears throat> uh, just co- from listening to music, um, I can remember as early as like my undergrad, we had like very small composition projects. A lot of it was probably horrible, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I had a lot of fun doing it. It was like a puzzle. And early on in my career, one of my... In New York, years later, actually, in New York, I gave me some really solid advice, which was like, no matter what you end up doing, you know, if you're playing in your orchestra or whatever, aside from the work, you should always have something that's your very own. Because when you're not as busy or when you have some free time, it's something that you can always like hang your hat on and, and always have that's your own. And for me, that became writing. Whether it's a method book or a composition... I love it. And it's become an an incredibly important part of just my, my, my life. So when I'm home and I'm off, um, I I always have something to do besides like things around the house or, you know, whatever, you know, two kids, besides all those responsibilities, I always have something to do. I will never be bored. I always have projects that are waiting for me, uh, for when I have time and some of them take, take longer than usual, but they're always there. And, I look forward to them. Like when I'm off, I, you know, run down to my studio and I, I start doing that, those things, and they're just very fulfilling. And writing was the thing that happened. Then along the way, for example, rhythmic roots, which is a suite of solos for snare drum with bass drum and hi-hat. Um, those are becoming pretty popular and I, I play them a lot in my classes. Um, those came about because a lot of you know classical students have never touched a drum set. and for me drum set was my first instrument even when i'm playing xylophone in an orchestra or tambourine or cymbals or whatever i feel like i'm grounding it in my feet based on my drum set playing it's where i i I link up my time with playing the violin the brass the conductor whatever it is that's where i link up my time and it helps me play much more together in, in any given ensemble even when i'm playing by myself there's like a point like a like an internal kind of groove sort of a timekeeping that happens I do some basic drum set with, with those, with my students, but I also do like exercises where they have to like keep the feet going, a shaker and play some rhythms in the other hand to expand like this responsibility of, of time, rhythm and coordination. Uh, and so when they go back to playing just scenario and just form out and remember whatever it is, it just has a different feel and a different sense of sense of conviction and authority to it, I think. The composition is the thing that drives a lot of that stuff.
0: I get the kind of the desire to to want to write and obviously to get better at it and have you have an outlet for it, um, for sure. But was was some of that motivated by just did you did you have things that you would work with students on and go, you know, this really doesn't exist. Maybe I should write it. Were were you uh, thinking of it that way?
1: I don't know if you know this, but I wrote a whole set of accompaniments for the Delacroix standard etudes, the 12 etudes for a harp and piano. Um, so they're all melodic and harmonic accompaniments for that. And the purpose of that was when I would play the Delacroix etudes, there came a point with the metronome where I felt, regardless of how much I practiced, it sounded like so vanilla, so flat to me. Like it, 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 it might be correct, but it didn't sound exciting or interesting. In a, in a word, it didn't sound melodic. I When I teach my students, I tell them, you know, I say, you should play the snare drum melodically. And so they ask me, well, how do you do that? You know, and, and I say, well, after years of kind of asking myself the same question, I found that when I played the Deliquities, I was humming a melody that didn't exist. I was just making it up in my head based on what I perceived to be like the phrases in, in, the, you know, in the etudes, the, the ones that kind of fall naturally based on dynamics or, or activity and things like that, I would just hum out tunes that you know didn't make any sense in a lot of ways. But I found that two things happened. Number one, I was playing in chunks instead of note to note. But also, all the technical stuff was much easier because I wasn't thinking of a four stroke rough. I was just thinking that that was the end of a phrase and maybe how I wanted that to flourish. Or how I wanted that to decorate the note instead of thinking of these three notes going to the other note, how I'm gonna play it. So I wasn't fixated on how I'm gonna do this. I was fixated on the message. Mm. And the melody, thinking of, of the melody helped me do that. So I actually sat down and wrote out 12 melodies and harmonies for each Etude. Which are available, you know, out there. But I, mean, I started playing along with them in classes and things like that, and a lot of students like really responded to it. Um, when I do it myself, and this this is this is one example, that I do with a lot of different things. I do the same thing with like the Pratt book. I put them, I arrange them all on drum set, you know, and I play the snare drum parts. Um, but when I do that, I just I play everything more relaxed, hmm. and I'm able to play more musically and disregard like some of the technical things that are difficult in the pieces, I just kind of play through them instead of fixating vertically on them. I'm, I'm able to play more linear, which is the way our time exists, the way our music exists, where our phrasing exists. So that was extremely important. It helped me a lot and in turn, it helped students a lot. So that's an, that's an example of how the composition part help, helps me, you know, solve my own problems, my playing, but also my students' problems. And, you know, of course, I'll, I'll come up with exercises on the fly to help them with certain things or combinations that, um, you know, I, I think the, I think the uh, overriding word here is like creativity. Yeah. Um, and I think it's an important part of teaching and learning that are often disregarded. Like, for example, people will pick up a, uh, let's say, let's take the green book, for example, like a or xylophone, right? It's the instruction courses. A lot of people play the first lesson their entire time in school and that's it. So that, that to me is like the narrowest version of how to play that book. Then I set off on a mission to like read through the whole book twice. Okay. So that's like what you should do. So it's not even like extra, but then taking some of those things and recreating them for like, you know, how can I apply this to timpani or how can I apply it to four-mallet playing? Or how can I, how can I, how can I apply these ideas to snare drum? You know, that's using a little more creativity in your practicing or not relying on a book on how to play a snare drum roll to develop your role, right? Thinking of what are the problems with my role and how do I want it to sound? What kind of colors do I want to create? And how does that exist in my hands? That's, that's using creativity for problem solving, which if you look around you, right? How do we get to the moon? There was no instruction manual they had to write the instruction manual to get to the mill which means they had to be created so all the problems all the problems are the things that we've accomplished as a you know as a as in the human race or or you know even in the last 10 years whatever it is like vaccinations and things like that these were all there was no instruction manual for these for these problems they were they were created the solutions were created and we should do the same thing with our playing. We should create the manual. It's going to make us better. There are great resources and we should use them as a base. But everybody is a different player. Everybody has slightly different body movements. Everybody thinks slightly different. Everybody looks different, thankfully, right? This diversity is wonderful. And so the way we learn is going to be different. And the only way to make it extremely powerful or the most powerful version you can is by being creative with your learning. So creativity is a word that I use a lot and that I, I promote creative ideas in my students. I even have them do certain projects that are based in creativity more than anything else. There's a few different versions. Um, there's ones that are thinking outside the box creativity. And there's ones that are just straight on. What, what's your idea? Like I gave them composition assignments. Like one was taking a, uh, two poems they could pick, and they had to set it to music with uh, with a specific instrumentation, percussion instrumentation, a minimum. So they could expand on it. And some kids came back with these beautiful compositions that included like electric guitar drones, and inclu- in addition to the percussion setup, singing. Um, they some pre-recorded the poems and and created these these beautiful textures with live percussion playing. I mean, they just, they, they come up with some amazing ideas. So that's, that's an obvious one in a way, right? You make a prompt, you have to create something from scratch, but another, another less obvious one, but I think that helped them with their problem solving was this, this little project they called uh, pick a pair where they had to pick a snare drum solo that was in the middle of their abilities, So nothing that was too difficult, but not too easy. And then they had to record that, snare drum solo. And then they had to play the same solo on triangle and tambourine. And I did that because I feel like at a young age, the excerpts are, they're cool. They're great. They're great things to learn, but I'm a believer in learning the instrument, not the piece.
0: Sure.
1: So I feel like if they had to learn a snare drum solo, they had to learn the instrument because then they had to come up with like i am I going to play this five stroke roll as opposed to this long roll? There's a few possibilities. Which one, which one am I going to pick? how am I going to play flams and drags on a tambourine or a triangle? And so then they had to record it in garage bands as three separate tracks that are on top of one another. And they had to sort of listen back and see like, Oh, what are the differences? Like your home base is probably a snare drum. So how did it sound compared to my snare drum solo? You know, um, what are things I can learn from the snare drum I can apply to the tambourine? What are some of the things I can do on tambourine maybe? Well, let's take like the triangle. The triangle has natural length, Right it rings snare drum doesn't tambourine doesn't so how can i simulate that ring on snare drum like what kind of ring am i getting on the triangle naturally and how can i make that the same on the snare drum things like that questions you can pose to yourself just from comparing those two things that are, are seen, that you never normally do like play snare drum i know some people have done it but normally students don't play snare drum on, uh, on tambourine and triangle and then what ends up happening is I. And the next semester we'll do like a placement audition where they have to play an excerpt and it's so much easier for them because they've learned how to play the instrument. And so now they have this range of solutions they can use for these excerpts that, you know, they didn't have before. And they can say to themselves, well, I, I, I can play this role two or three different ways. Which one am I going to choose for this particular piece? And I found those to be like really important and valuable,
0: you know, yeah, those are great. It's, it's really good. Those are really good uh, solutions and ways to to be creative. I really appreciate that. I had the w- recently. I thought about of this of, of like using one book for a different thing that that was not intended. Oh, there's two things. One is that there's a similar thing with the stone, uh, the stone book, and people playing like what the first three pages, and then never getting into any of the rolls or diddles or. You know, so that's 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 like the the cool. parallel for the the green book. But I I took the green book and I had to do. I was playing um, a steel band gig, and I hadn't played pan in a while, so I pulled the the green book out, and it was like like my like it was yeah. <laughs> I did not know what to do with my hands. Yeah, I can imagine like none of this makes sense. And then like finally <laughs> I started to get it, but but it was one of those where I was like, okay, this is a good exercise. <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, I, that's, that's a great example. I mean, look, the syncopation book is probably yeah. the best example that is oh, right. used for everything. Yeah. Um, and Sam Solomon came up with a whole cool version to use the stone, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, the stone book yeah. for mallet playing. Oh, so I mean there's, yeah. yeah, there's great. There's great ways. I, I firm believe in recycling books like that and using them for, for many, many different things. I think that's, and that's, again, I do have a big library of books. I would say that I go to 10% of them all the time. Right. And I recycle those quite a bit to use them for other things. But I I think that that's a better, again, that's a better way to go about it just because you're taking responsibility for what you're trying to learn and come up with a solution for something. Yeah. Um, instead of trying to find it in a book. I mean, that's good. That's, that's good. You should do that. And by the way, you said, Oh, some people don't, and I said this too, we both said this, that some people don't go past the first couple of uh, pages in these books. Well, some people don't even read the foreword in these books before those first exercises. Like, none of my, stu- almost none of my students read the beginning of the green instruction manual for Xylophone, the rules for practice and all that stuff. That is a huge wealth of information that will, if you read it, you will approach all those exercises in a much different way because he lays out some really important things to consider like the way you're going to do it, which makes all the difference in the world. So reading the text in the beginning of all this stuff, the, the Della method book for snare drum, that's another example. Mm-hmm. Where, like, you know, have you, have you read this stuff before you do the exercises? You know, some people don't even realize that the first set of exercises are supposed to be with one hand only. So they start like playing all two. No, it's, it's an individual hand development because you have to make sure each hand is strong before you get into both hands. So if you miss that, right. you've missed a major concept in the book.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and sometimes there are books like, have you worked with the new breed? those are wild. Cause you're like, if you open those up, you're like, I don't, that's one where you actually like, you have to read it because you're, you're just like, I don't, I don't understand what's what I'm supposed to do here. And then you're like, Oh, all right. And then, and then it's just really hard. Yeah. But the, but the, but again, the con, once you get the concept,
1: yeah. it's, it's the other thing I like about the Gary Chester book is it introduced me to adding singing to all your playing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like years and years and years ago. Um, when you start playing something complicated and you just count one, two, three, four, as you're doing it, which is hard to do when you're playing something really complicated, that has a whole dimension of coordination and skills that you don't even notice are occurring because your brain is actually in the process of rewiring as you're doing that. Right. Not only that, but when you're singing, when you're singing you're internalizing all this information it goes right to the source more so than you know a lot of times a, a student has difficulty with a snare drum etude and i just have them put the sticks down and we just conduct and sing which is a fairly common thing but young students don't do that and it's interesting because i'll have them sing the first two lines while they're conducting i'll do it i'll do it twice after they are not able to play it on snare drum then i'll have them pick up the sticks and play through the first two lines no mistakes no mistakes because they actually learn what's going on in the music they've up, they've learned it up here first and so then the hands can just pull it off of course you know yeah so the both the singing this idea all this all these ways to think about practicing creativity and you really using the resources you have and then expanding on them and then that that is so 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 valuable <laughs>
0: And we'll get to part two with Pablo Rieppe next week. Stay tuned. This week's rave is the 1976 autobiography, Coal Miner's Daughter, written by Loretta Lynn and George Vesey, available wherever you get your books. I tend to go back and forth about my feelings regarding autobiographies. They frequently are fine. They can be not particularly well-written or somewhat elucidating, but a lot of times they're underwhelming. Or if nothing else, you read them for some context to get a sense of the person that is telling you their story, but you frequently find out more about the person whose autobiography you are reading from someone commenting on their life. That could be through a biography or a really good documentary or a podcast or something of that nature. Part of why this Particular autobiography is a rave this week, is due to the nature of the subject. In this case, Loretta Lynn, who seemed to have a pretty fascinating life to talk about when this was written, in this case, while she was in her early 40s. The job of writing in her voice is the other great work through the co author George Vesey. George Vesey was a name I was familiar with because he has been a very active and accomplished sports journalist for a long time including authoring sports books I've read and columns I've seen over the years. And after working with Loretta Lynn, he was then sought out by others to co-write their autobiographies. If you're familiar with Loretta Lynn's story, and you probably are, it's because it's the classic rags to riches tale. What's known is that she grew up very, very sheltered and poor in the Appalachian Mountains, became a mother at age 14, a grandmother at age 29, which seems impossible, and did not become a country artist until she was in her mid-20s. Her story is closely tied to that of her longtime husband, Oliver Doolittle Lynn, who married her when he was 20 and she was in her mid-teens, stayed with her throughout the rest of his life, and acted as her manager for much of her career. The story is immortalized in the 1980 film Coal Miner's Daughter, with Tommy Lee Jones nominated for an Oscar for playing Doolittle and Sissy Spacek winning an Oscar for her portrayal of Loretta Lynn in the movie. The autobiography is split up into a lot of short stories about Loretta's life, including her life growing up, parents, her siblings, being a mom, getting chased after by men who want her to cheat on her husband, her finances, buying property, songwriting, and many others. It's easy to read, particularly in segments, And you get to learn a lot about the country music industry of the 1960s and 70s when much of this is professionally set. The real gem of the book, however, goes to the work George Vesey did to make this truly, and I mean truly, in Loretta Lynn's voice. If you've heard Loretta Lynn in interviews, seen her live performances, watched any number of great documentaries that she's been involved in, you really do get a sense of what she sounds like. And few, if any, autobiographies do a better job of allowing you to literally hear someone talking to you while you're reading it, as Coal Miner's Daughter does. You cannot escape the fact that you are reading and, in essence, hearing the conversational nature of Loretta Lynn's voice as if she's telling you a story with no one else around, and that is what makes this work stand out. Available wherever you get your books. Hey now, public library. Check out Coal Miner's Daughter for a truly engaging read. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast, the Apple Podcasts, and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there, on Instagram and X at Pete Zambito or by email at PeteSperkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two of our conversation with Pablo Rieppi. Until then.